This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 208 of Literary Treks, your official books and comics podcast here on Trek FM. I'm one of your hosts, Bruce Gibson, and then we got another guy here that's hosting the show, as always, Dan Gunther. Hey Bruce, how's it going today? I'm doing well. How about you? I can't complain. Got a really cool book coming up in the feature. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, no, this is a good time to be a Star Trek fan. It absolutely is. Yeah, the book in our feature today is called Star Trek Treknology. And so it's all about the technologies of Star Trek and how real this stuff could be and how it could become that way. And it's written by Ethan Siegel. So he'll be joining us to talk about all this cool nifty stuff. So if you don't read Star Trek novels or and you're not into the whole lit verse... You don't need to worry about that on this episode because this is all just about the stuff you've seen on Star Trek and how how real all that stuff could be. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and definitely stick with us through the feature. So why don't we go right into the news? That's our new little segue into the news. That's our bumper. So we have a book coming out. I think it's in February. It's the next Star Trek Discovery book. And it's called Drastic Measures. So, Dan, we have a blurb now for that book. We do indeed, thanks to Dayton Ward, who's the book's author, recently posted the blurb. And it sounds really interesting. And continuity buffs out there who like the original series, I think you're going to find this one pretty interesting. Oh, do tell, Dan. Do tell. It is 2246, 10 years prior to the battle at the Binary Stars, and an aggressive contagion is ravaging the food supplies of the remote Federation colony Tarsus IV and the 8,000 people who call it home. Distress signals have been sent, but any meaningful assistance is weeks away. Lieutenant Commander Gabriel Lorca and a small team assigned to a Starfleet monitoring outpost are caught up in the escalating crisis and bear witness as the colony's governor, Adrian Kodos, employs an unimaginable solution in order to prevent mass starvation. While awaiting transfer to her next assignment, Commander Philippa Georgiou is tasked with leading to Tarsus IV a small, hastily assembled group of first responders. 
It's hoped that this advanced party can help stabilize the situation until more aid arrives, but Georgiou and her team discover that they're too late. Governor Kodos has already implemented his heinous strategy for extending the colony's besieged food stores and safeguarding the community's long-term survival. In the midst of their rescue mission, Georgiou and Lorca must now hunt for the architect of this horrific tragedy and the man whom history will one day brand Kodos the Executioner. Ooh, this is not the first time we've seen Kodos the Executioner in books. And so it'd be interesting to see if Dayton ties this in that works around some of the other novels uh, that we've seen that take place in this time frame. Indeed, yeah. No, he's a. Uh, there, there's been a few stories centered around this incident, and uh, uh, the Shatnerverse novel uh, took it on, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Avenger. Avenger? Yes, yep. Avenger, right. And also the autobiography of James T. Kirk. That's right. Yep, absolutely. Which is a little teaser because I think our next episode will be about the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard. Man, all these Starfleet captains, who knew they were really good writers too, right? That's true. Well, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> read what Jean-Luc Picard has written yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, no, this uh, this novel, Drastic Measures, uh, comes out February 6th, 2018. That's the official release date. I gotta wonder, these, these Discovery novels, we had Desperate Hours, now we have Drastic Measures. What's the next one going to be? Tense Happenings, perhaps? Hmm... Is this a clue to the next book? I don't know. <laughs> no, that's fine. And this is one of those, if you remember, Desperate Hours was the size of the book. The physical size of the book was a little taller, a little bigger than regular uh, Star Trek paperback books. And this is going to be the same. It's going to be that same trade paperback format. So uh, the two next to each other on the shelf should look really well together. Definitely, yeah. Looking forward to getting my hands on this one. So... I want to get our hands on to number 12 of Boldly Go. We finally have another Boldly Go comic that's come out. It's taken a while, but now we've got Boldly Go number 12. And let's go ahead and talk about what we thought of this one. Of course, the Boldly Go series is about the Kelvin Timeline crew of the Enterprise. In this case, the uh, Endeavor, because the Enterprise is in space dock getting rebuilt or getting a new Enterprise, the A. And so um, let's see. I've got my little notes here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have a connection. This is kind of part two from issue number 11. And this is kind of a play on the TOS episode, Whom Gods Destroy, because we have Captain Garth in here. And it starts off with the fact that he had shot Kirk, but he's a shapeshifter. So Kirk didn't realize it was Captain Garth that did this until he start, starts talking to Eurydice, and she informs him that she saw, saw Captain Garth doing the shape-shifting. Mm -hmm. so, and then her daughter comes in, and she's like, that bad man beamed away. And Kirk's like, oh no, he beamed away. He probably beamed onto the Enterprise, and now Kirk is worried. It's kind of interesting because this was Garth's whole plan in the episode Whom's, Whom Gods Destroy, and he didn't get to implement it. He was he was going to impersonate Kirk and get aboard the Enterprise and, and steal it. And it's kind of interesting that in this comic, he succeeds in that. He manages to uh, impersonate Kirk and get aboard. And 
it's the endeavor, not the enterprise, but you know, he takes Kirk's place and commandeers the ship. So it's kind of a neat, what if, you know, if he had succeeded in that episode way back when the difference here is nobody knows he's crazy and nobody knows that, you know, it could be Garth kind of thing. Yeah. And of course the crew starts to suspect something because Kirk's acting a little funny. He doesn't seem to remember who he was playing chess with because he says to McCoy, hey, let's uh, pick up where we left off. And McCoy's like, I wasn't playing chess with you. You were you know, playing with Elix. So not Neelix, Elix. And, uh, and Kirk's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. It must have slipped my mind. And he would refer to McCoy as Leonard, not Bones. And so, you know, there's some things are going on. They're a little suspicious. Kirk seems off his game. But, of course, mm-hmm. we know it's not the real Kirk. And I, I like that it's one of the things that trips him up is chess because, <laughs> you know, the original episode, it was a, it was a chess problem code that they had for that, that prevented him from beaming up to the ship. Scotty gave a code. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like queen to queens level three or something like that. And he had to respond with a corresponding code back. And so it's just kind of a nice little continuity that, that, chess features in this one as well as far as raising people's suspicions yeah there's a little things like that peppered in here that connect to that episode but play a little differently or a little winks to it uh especially when we get a little closer to the end it gets even more obvious um but now the real captain kirk is a, is on antos four and he's getting on a ship with you know this woman and this child that he knows and she puts him her child in his lap and he almost looks like you know oh a nice little family flying off because the little girl (laughs) seems admired you know by him and she's you know here i'll help you ignite the dorsal thrusters (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's pretty cute there's i i like the art in this book it's a little bit more uh comic booky than some of the other art we've been getting lately but i i really like this style of this one and it's neat to see Kirk in a different situation like this. And uh, at the end of the comic, we get Kirk in a very familiar situation, I guess, if, you, if you're if you a follower of the exploits of James T. Kirk. But uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting story. I'm, I kind of enjoyed this one. It was a quicker wrap up to this story than I was expecting. Uh, but at the same time, it's fairly well executed. And, and I like the little continuity nods. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, speaking of the end, and you know, I, I guess you can kind of say we're going into a bit of a spoilers, but it's not really going to give away the ending. But eventually our Captain Kirk finally gets back on the Endeavor and then is facing off with Captain Garth. And guess what? Captain Garth shapeshifts into Kirk. And then the crew comes in and says, wait, which is the real Captain Kirk? Who do we shoot first? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so uh, Sulu is very smart and say, tell me what my daughter's name is. And so that helps to figure out who the real Kirk is. Yeah. I still have the same problem with this scene that I had with the, the scene in the original whom gods destroy episode where this comes up in a universe where you have phasers that can be set to stun. Who cares? Stun them both. <laughs> and, and come- I, I've never thought about that, but you are so right. <laughs> I think Leonard, I think I remember Leonard Nimoy rolling his eyes in in some interview about that saying that's ridiculous you just shoot them both <laughs> but yeah you know it, it's it's a typical drama thing that yeah okay it's yeah anyway 
<laughs> maybe the idea is that you know you really don't want to shoot your captain even if it's on stun and so we'll let take a moment to try to figure out who the right one is and impress your captain that you guessed the right <laughs> one <laughs> i don't know but those scenes always remind me of uh star trek 6 the undiscovered country when they're on ruta pinthe Ru- mm. ruta pinthe I, I don't ever say that out loud very often but <laughs> Yeah, that one I I appreciated because it was the bad guy with the gun and they were going to vaporize, you know, that like it works a little bit anyway, dramatically. Anyway, yeah, it does for (laughs) sure. So, uh, okay, so Boldly Go number 12 is available uh, at your comic store or online. So get it or download it and keep up with what's happening. So we have another one one more that we want to cover and that is star trek new voyages this is issue number 18 and the title is what pain it is to drown and the cover is interesting because it shows the enterprise i almost want to say it looks like it's underwater but it's almost like it looks like in a glass of sprite all the bubbles (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally i never thought of that but yeah it looks like Somebody's picked up their tall glass of Sprite or 7-Up or whatever and looked in it and gone, what the? And the Enterprise is just bobbing around in there. Or, uh, yes, I would like to have a club soda with a Starship, please. Just a twist. (laughs) Just a twist of Starship. (laughs) Club soda on the Starship. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So these are one of these uh, comics that were using photos and images from the original series, so it looks like a uh, photo novel. Hmm, that calls back to a previous episode of Literary Treks. But uh, so in this case, uh, their Enterprise is on a routine resupply mission, and they're heading to this planet, but they're getting no response, no contact from the planet. I think initially they had received something, but there was no more signals anymore. And once they come to find out, the planet is flooded. The whole planet now is underwater and there's no one alive left on the planet. And so they also start receiving a signal from another planet they're later supposed to go to. And the same thing is happening there. So there's all this weird stuff happening with water to the point that even when they're traveling through space, they see goblets, these little round spheres of water in space and they come to determine that they're organic and not alive and that there's like there's something weird about these things. So, Dan, what did you think about the water and what was going on at this point? It was I, I thought it was a little weird, you know, but at the same time, you know, kind of interesting. I like when there's kind of a unique mystery and I don't this this isn't recalling for me anything similar that we've seen in other Star Trek episodes. So I, I did appreciate that, that, you know, I'm wondering what's going on, what's, what's happening here. And the fact that it feels original is uh definite plus in the, in the, in the positives column for me here. Yeah. And there's one thing in here that looks somewhat familiar to me and I know there's not a connection, but Scotty does beams some water out of these goblets onto the enterprise into this, tube and the tube reminded me of like those tubes they have on the spore drive on the discovery huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, could they be using the same tube but there's no way i'm sure when this comic was done it was before discovery even went on air but it just well, starfleet tube technology has remained unchanged for decades i'm sure spock <laughs> would say <laughs> 
Buck would say it's YouTube. But so the water's in this tube, and at one point it splashes out, and then it covers all the surfaces around it, not just on the ground, but the the walls, the ceiling, or whatever's around it. So it's it's this weird sensation. It's like it's got no gravity. It can just cling on. No pun intended. It could just cling on to anything. See what mm. I'm saying, Dan? Cling on, cling on. I, I, I get, I get what you're laying yeah, down. I know. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they get to this other planet and they go to investigate. And so our crew of McCoy, Spock, and Rand decide to go uh, down in their new environmental suits, which were quite interesting. Yeah, those are kind of fun. Um. <laughs> It's like they cover their body. Ram points out it covers your body to the point it doesn't feel like you're wearing anything. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you get the voice of Ned Flanders in your head as well? Feels like I'm wearing nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> Stupid sexy Flanders. <laughs> was that just me? That might have just yeah, been Yeah, I think me. that was just you, but that was a good one. <laughs> Well, and I like McCoy's response to Rand saying it feels like she's not wearing anything. He's like, delightful as that thought might be. <laughs> yeah, I kind of had to roll my eyes at that. <laughs> <laughs> so they start from the shuttlecraft because they want to get a sample from the water. So they, in the shuttlecraft, they they uh, they lower a probe down to, to pull some water. But all of a sudden, the water from the plant starts coming up the the cable that's hanging from the shuttlecraft. It comes up and then the water kind of takes over and surrounds the whole shuttle shuttlecraft. So now the shuttlecraft is in this weird water formation and loses communication with the Enterprise. Even to the point then the water starts rising up towards the Enterprise and engulfs the Enterprise and the shuttle bay doors are open, which means now that the water's coming into the Enterprise. And as this water's just coming up, just off of the planet towards the Enterprise, Scotty yells, looks like the whole planet is throwing up. <laughs> and so all the water comes in and it's flooding everything and it, it's just disastrous. But um, they they get, you know, Scotty's a genius, so he figures out a way to get the water off the different decks and everything. <laughs> is he a genius? I mean, why did he leave the hangar bay doors open? He said he had to run some tests or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, that that part I thought was a little bit, uh, a little contrived. What does he say? Sir, as long as we have the hangar doors open, I was thinking it might be a good time to run some routine checks on the doors, I guess, or... So that anyway, it's a kind of weak reason that they leave the hangar doors open and therefore this water is able to get in. But at the same time, I understand they have to do something to to otherwise, you know, why wouldn't the Enterprise be watertight if it's airtight? But well, anyway. even if the shuttle bay doors are open, isn't there a force field? Wouldn't uh, I hope or at least? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, Although in the original series, they did say and this kind of means uh oh discovery gets a little bit of the continuity wrong but when they bring shuttles aboard they do talk about depressure depressurizing and repressurizing the shuttle bay so yeah maybe not maybe they don't have a force field yeah or maybe they do sometimes and maybe they don't and this time they didn't have it up now because of the tests or whatever okay I'm... or they or they didn't have the dial on the force field turned to water <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously, this Enterprise doesn't handle water as well as the Calvin Timeline Enterprise <laughs> from Into Darkness. So, 
But uh, and then, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details or anything, but the shuttlecraft is now in the water on the planet and they meet this alien fish like guy with mechanical arms. And uh, basically they conclude that he's gone nuts. He's the last surviving member of his race and he's feeling guilty about it. And so this using this water to maybe try to repopulate planets and any other life is just insignificant to him. It doesn't even recognize it. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but he eventually dies and everybody's happy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So I thought, I thought it was a fun uh, story and interesting. And like you said, the water was something that was different. So I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to say, I actually really enjoyed this one as well. Uh, This is, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is my favorite of the new Voyages ones yet, but uh, it was really good. I was really impressed with this one. I thought the story was really interesting. It was a mystery that was compelling. And the idea of the water climbing the walls and like rushing up and enveloping the ship, you know, it was kind of scary and and an interesting threat. So, yeah, I have to give them props on this one. Story contrivances aside, nah, whatever. You got to get the got to get the story going somehow. So, I'll but, give them a pass on that one. Well, there you go. Yeah, I, I I think if anybody's enjoyed the new Visions comics, I think you'll enjoy this one too. But yeah, I would say it's probably not the my favorite one, but but it's fun. I liked it a lot. And you know, the water getting in to the Enterprise and and whether the the bay doors are open or there's a force field up or not you know maybe there's some technological reason why this could happen and i can't think of anybody better than ethan siegel who can tell us about all kinds of star trek technology so i say we go right into the feature that is a great idea bruce let's do it so in today's feature we're going to talk about the book star trek technology the science of star trek from tricorders to warp drive and this is by Ethan Siegel. Now, this book is about explaining the technologies that we see in Star Trek. Now, some of these technologies have already been invented and are being used today. And there are other technologies in the book that show just how close we are to achieving them. And maybe we may see these achieved in our lifetimes. So I'd like to welcome to the show the author of the book, Ethan Siegel. How are you doing, Ethan? Hi there, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm having a great time, and I'm really excited about the debut of this book. Oh, so are we. Right, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Awesome. Welcome to the show. Great to have you on. This was a lot of fun to read, so really excited to talk to you today. No, that's fantastic. I mean, that's how I wrote it, right? When when the idea first came up, it was like, well, what are all of the technologies that you think of when you think of Star Trek? And I think I think that, you know, the first like 10 people I talked to, they rattled off like 12, 15 different technologies each. And I was so pleased that like, yes, I've got that one. I've got that one. I've got that one. I've got them. (laughs) Finally, someone said, you know, in the next generation, it never rains on earth. Are you going to do one on weather control? And I was like, you got me. You got me. Oh, yeah. I finally got one (laughs) that I didn't pick. Well, that's fine because that just means you have to write a second book. Exactly. (laughs) I would love that sequel, right? Just... uh, I don't know if we're going to put the uh, mycelium spore drive in there. We'll have to see. Yes, yes, for sure. So tell us about yourself and how did you come about writing this book? 
So I'm a PhD astrophysicist. I, I do theoretical cosmology is my specialty. Uh, I got my PhD in 2006. And since that time, you know, I have been a professor for a number of years, but I also am really interested in science communication and sharing what we know and how we know it about the universe with everyone. I also do cosplay and I go to uh, science fiction fantasy conventions. And I've been a Star Trek fan since I was... I'll say since I was a teenager and I really got into the next generation, right? So that's that's a show that came out when I was maybe nine years old, but I really started to get into it when I rediscovered it at about age 13. And I was like blown away by this epic vision of the future where we had, you know, people, humans, and all sorts of alien races exploring the galaxy, learning about what's out there, and using the benefit of science and technology to really solve some of the major social problems with the world and with really any world, um, that this idea of collaboration, of sharing knowledge, of using what we know to bring everyone's quality of life up while making what was once thought to be completely impossible actually feasible. Now, when I was in high school, I read Lawrence Krauss's book, The Physics of Star Trek, and I thought like, oh, this is a good read. This was interesting stuff. Um, but it's 21 years later now, right? That book came out just at the end of the run of Next Generation. And now here we are, Star Trek The Next Generation is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. The original series is 51 years old. So last year, I, we sort of had the idea, hey, what if we did the real life science behind all of the technologies in Star Trek? We didn't just do the physics ones, but we did the tech ones, the computational ones, the civilian ones, and we also did the medical and biological ones. And we tried to bring this up to date. And, and not only that, but we went more in depth. And when this publisher, Quarto, uh, which owns Voyager Press, which is the imprint I worked for, when they told me, hey, we've got the license rights from CBS Studios and Paramount Pictures, I was like, let me know what are all the deadlines I need to hit so that this book can be out before Christmas of 2017. And we hit every single one. It was it was a, a thing of beauty and very little sleep. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I actually had the same thought about Lawrence Krauss's book while I was reading this because I, I have fond memories of reading that when I was young as well. And reading this, it's amazing how far it, it really documents how far we've come in those 20 years, 20 plus years since that book was published. And yeah, I found myself just kind of blown away by the technologies you're talking about in this book and stuff that we have access to today. I mean, when you think about some of the things that we didn't have back in the mid-90s that we have today, um, most people, I think, don't really realize how far we've come. Like, when you talk about, like, the Google Pixel 2, the new phone, you can hook up earpieces into your ear and connect them and have two people who don't speak the same language have their own universal translator in real time with only seconds of delays in speech between when they say something in their native language, someone else hears that same speech in their own native language and can talk back to you in their language and you hear it in yours. And this works for dozens of languages now, which is really incredible. If you think about the computational advances, right? 
pads from Star Trek The Next Generation where you had these touchscreen computers brilliantly designed by Michael Okuda, right? And they're known as Okudagrams to the real hardcore Trekkies. Um, these things were you know, vision to be like hundreds of years in the future that we would have this technology. And in 2010 or so, when the first iPads and tablet computers came out, like that was it, they're here. This is, this is pad technology. Like the iPad is even named after that. Um, when you think about something like the phaser, right? The idea that you could set a phaser to stun and, and actually disable someone from a great distance without causing lethal damage. You know, everyone knows about the taser and you're like, yeah, but that's not really a phaser. But then on the other hand, you learn the military in the 2000s has developed a technology where you have a two-phase pulse. One pulse is high energy light. And when it collides with the target, even, by the way, across the vacuum of space. When it collides with that target, it creates this short, tiny little burst of ionized plasma, right? It just knocks electrons off of atoms there. It gets hot, but not enough to burn you or anything. Then that second pulse that they send is infrared radiation. This is heat. It's light in the form of heat all of that gets absorbed by the electrons in the plasma. You send a high enough energy infrared pulse, the electrons absorb it, they heat up, they expand, that causes an explosion, but it's a concussive force. So it can knock the target over, it can knock them out, but it doesn't have the lethal, you know, potential that bullets do. It doesn't even have the lethal potential that rubber bullets or bean bags do, where you know if those hit you in the eye, they can go into your brain. If this hits you in the eye, then it knocks you off over in the head area. But that's it. Um, can you imagine how useful this would be in a world where one third of the gun deaths result from police officers using their guns. Can you imagine what a boon this would be to law enforcement in this day and age? I would be totally in favor of it. And that's not even getting into the fact that Qualcomm had to give out two and a half million dollars because a team invented the tricorder earlier this year. That's without even getting into in the 1990s that a theoretical physicist named Miguel Alcubierre figured out how you can, within the constraints of Einstein's relativity, have a solution that enables a real-life warp drive. That, that these things, which were like crazy pipe dreams when Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation came out, these are technologies that are in varying levels of progress, some of which are already here. So that's a good point. So like with warp drive, and there's so many different technologies in this book, and we're not going to be able to cover them all, because really, you have to go and by the book and read it to know everything about this but like for warp drive how realistic is it that we can lessen the travel between two points with warp drive or something like warp drive this is a really good question because warp drive is one of the very few technologies that i profile in the book that we would need some addition to physics as we currently know it right you would need you would need for warp drive to work you would need some type of either negative mass or negative energy to exist in the universe right now all the particles we know of only have positive mass and positive energy but if you can make some with negative mass, what 
we were able to show, what physicists were able to show is within Einstein's relativity, if you have a little region of space-time, just imagine like a three-dimensional bubble and you're moving this bubble through space, right? Normally, the space just is roughly flat and it maybe distorts or puckers slightly because of the mass and energy of your spacecraft. But now, imagine you've got positive energy and negative energy to work with. You could manipulate the space around you so that the space in front of you, in the direction you're moving, contracts. It gets compressed, while the space behind you expands. So now imagine this, you're moving forward, you've got this contracted space in front of you, and you're moving rapidly through that contracted space, while the space behind you expands to make up for it. So you contract the space in front of you, you rapidly move through it, and maybe, you know, if you have, say, 40 light years from you to the star you want to go to, you contract it down so that instead of moving at, say, you know, instead of taking 40 years to travel it at the speed of light, it takes 40 weeks to travel it at the speed of light. And then you move close to the speed of light, and within a year, you're there. This solves two problems. One is it allows you to reach the stars in a single human lifetime, in a, in a short amount of time. But the other thing is you don't suffer from the relativity problem of aging, where you move close to the speed of light at relativistic speeds, right? If you're like, oh, I'm going to go 40 light years away, and then I'm going to come back 40 light years, and at home, 80 years have passed, so everyone you know is dead, right? But if you can do this, if you can contract the space in front of you and shorten that journey and then go back and contract the space in front of you and come back, instead of 80 years passing, maybe it's only two. That's not so bad. No, so that's not bad. I, I like looking forward to this. So yes, there's this caveat that we need something to exist in the universe that we haven't yet discovered, right? Negative mass or negative energy. But on the other hand, if this does exist, right, that's how you make it possible. That's how you make it so. Well, I remember watching The Next Generation when it was you know, still being produced. And at the time I was thinking, you know, we're talking two, three, four hundred years from now having warp drive. But I thought, realistically, if that exists, it's probably more like a thousand years from now. But like you were saying earlier, there's so many technologies in Star Trek that have come a lot sooner than we expected. Do you think it's possible we could have something like warp drive in the next hundred years? Honestly, I think so. So if so, we're going to assume that, that negative mass, negative energy is real, and we're going to discover it, right? So let's assume that that's the case. Really, the only limitations, once we discover something is physically possible to making it practically possible, is the investment of resources. So if you said, hey, with the current NASA and National Science Foundation budget, how far away are we? I, I would say, yeah, your initial estimate of thousands of years is probably right. If we keep that flat level funding, we're not going to go very far. But if we decide as a society, you know what, maybe taking this vision of Star Trek, maybe taking this vision of, hey, if we invest humanity's resources in the development of science and technology for the benefit of all of humanity, for the benefit of everyone on Earth, and to advance our knowledge, our species, and to take us to the stars, this is possible. 
I mean, look, we've had the technology, for example, since the 1990s, that if we invested enough money, enough resources, we could have had a human being walking on the surface of Mars in 10 years. We still have that capability today. We could do it better and safer and more robustly today. But again, that would require the investment. And that's an investment we just haven't been willing to make, right? You would basically have to double NASA's budget for 10 years. And if you did that, we would not only have humans on Mars, we would probably have a human colony on Mars within a decade. Well, and that's one thing that, to me, Star Trek has done over the years is provide a lot of that kind of inspiration. And I think that really comes through in this book as well. There are stories of people who went into engineering, into medical sciences, all kinds of sciences because of the characters on Star Trek. And similarly, the incredible technologies that we've seen in Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation have inspired people to create these breakthroughs and led people to go into NASA and stuff. So, you know, we just need people to really watch Star Trek again and kids to really get inspired here uh, and create the next generation of technologies like like we've gotten so far. I think I think that's absolutely right. You know, when you think about that, those ideals of Star Trek, that altruism of Star Trek, right? How how appealing is that, that you can say, you know, yeah, there are problems in the world, but if we can put our differences aside and work towards these same mutual goals that realistically we all share, then then it's really limitless what we can achieve. If we're not doing this petty bickering with one another, like what what fantastic things can come out of this? And the answer, as we're as we're seeing things develop, is we can make our wildest physically possible dreams come true. So that's the little caveat: is physically possible, <laughs> but um, but but then again, there are plenty of things that weren't known to be physically possible decades ago that that all of a sudden are. Um, it's just Star Trek a... didn't always get the mechanism of these technologies right. And that's why I sort of really appreciate the, uh, I guess we call it babble in the industry, where they'll say things like, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, yeah, we've got this warp drive and something, something, dilithium crystals and, uh, you know, and then the ship goes fast, right? Warp, warp 9.5, engage. You just need a little asterisk that says subspace doesn't actually exist. <laughs> I did. I did have to put that asterisk in there. Um, but right. Subspace doesn't actually exist. If you want to have artificial gravity, you'll need a type of, again, a type of negative mass, negative gravitational mass, which may exist, by the way. We've never tested which way antimatter falls in a gravitational field. Most people expect that it's going to fall down like everything else does that we've measured. But if antimatter falls up in a gravitational field, well, you know that you can have positive and negative electric charges, and that enables you to do all sorts of incredible things. If you build a spherical shell of out of a conducting material around something, then the electric field inside it is zero. You're shielded from the electric field outside, which means if you get close to a black hole, but you have your matter and antimatter charges and antimatter has negative gravitational mass, this is again an if, then all of a sudden you can get close to a black hole and you won't have any forces ripping you apart. It also means if you set up matter 
on the floor of your spaceship and antimatter on the ceiling of your spaceship, you can make a constant gravitational field. So you won't have to deal with the plights that astronauts have to deal with where, oh, I've been in space a long time and I've had bone loss and I've had muscles loss and my heart is atrophying and I went blind and I have vertigo. Like with gravity, with artificial gravity, this isn't a concern anymore. I mean, it's like, I feel like this stuff could really happen like real soon. I'm getting excited now. <laughs> so maybe Star Trek will go off the air because people will be like, yeah, we do all that now. We all fly around. That's just, you know, hokey old stuff. But let me ask you about, speaking of new Star Trek, though, um, with Discovery, we have been hearing about the Spore Drive. What, what are your thoughts about that? I think it's important, right? You don't want to sacrifice scientific accuracy for for wonder, right? And so I was a little disappointed that they decided to go with such, um, so detailed into the explanation because instead of like leaving room for, oh, we don't know how the transparent aluminum works or we don't know how the, um, how this uh, photon torpedo actually works. We don't know, like, when you leave a little bit of mystery, that leaves room for the series to explore it, right? No one ever explained the biology of how synthahol, you know, gives you all the good effects of alcohol, but doesn't give you dead brain cells or a hangover or dehydration or any of that. They just said, yeah, we have this thing called synthahol and here's what it does. When you start getting into the details of the spore drive, there are some things where you're going to have to say, okay, well, well, we know this isn't exactly how it works, right? We know, for example, that fungi, which have evolved here on Earth, are not something that's evolved everywhere in the universe, right? If you want a simple organism, you wouldn't pick something like mycelium. You would pick something like a prokaryotic bacteria. You would pick something that was much further back the evolutionary chain. You wouldn't pick something that took billions of years on Earth to evolve. That's, that's not a good choice for something to be all throughout the galaxy. Um, but that said, um, it is not unreasonable to think, you know, there is imagining a network of things, right? We have wormholes in Deep Space Nine and, you know, for that, you know, you're willing to say, sure, like you can poke a hole in space time at one place and, and have it come out in another, right? Like if you imagine like space is this sheet of paper and you put your fingers on one side and you put your fingers on the other side and space is flat, it's going to take you a long time to get from one side to the other. But if you can curve space just right and you can connect those two points, then all of a sudden you can just tunnel through from one spot to another. I like to imagine that the spore drive is a little bit like that, that you have some, some way of saying, well, we have all this biological energy here and all this biological energy over here, and maybe they can do some sort of curvature to space to link those points and poke you through. Um, you have to be pretty careful, though, if you're just saying, oh, well, you just have these two uh, quantumly entangled biological organisms, right? There's a theorem that was proven in 1993 that says if you have quantum information entangled, right, you can do this phenomenon of quantum teleportation. 
And that's pretty cool, but it doesn't actually teleport particles. It teleports information. And specifically the way it teleports information is not like, oh, I can make a message over here at point A and then have someone at point B receive it. No, that's not how quantum teleportation works. Imagine, imagine you've got two particles that start out together and you entangle them. So they're both indeterminate particles on their own. But if you measure the quantum state of one, you know the quantum state of the other because that's what entanglement does. Then you take them really far apart. If what you do is you measure, okay, what's the state of particle A over here, then particle B, no matter how far it is away, you immediately know its quantum state. That's quantum teleportation. But if you say, okay, now I've got particle A and I'm going to force it to be uh, the binary bit zero, it would be your instinct to say, aha, now I know this other guy B is the binary state of one. No no, that's wrong, because when you forced it to be a zero, you destroyed that entanglement. And you might say, well, maybe there's some way to preserve it that we just haven't thought of. Like, uh, well, you know, you might say, well, maybe there's some new theory, but we did the experiment. Like, this is not theoretically proven in 1993. It was experimentally proven by a physicist named uh, William Wooters. So... That, that's kind of the answer on that. So I think if, if they sort of say, here is how the spore drive works, then we can say, no, that's not how it works. But if they say, you know, maybe it's possible to jump from one location to another using some sort of advanced physics in the universe, then I'll say, okay, now, now we've got a technology worth talking about. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, that's one of the things that I loved watching the original series as a kid uh, in, in reruns, of course. I didn't watch it first run, unfortunately. But, you know, you had these things like the warp drive and the transporters and they just they just beamed them from one place to the next. And there was no, you know, explanation of how it was done. It was just the magic of science, you know, and and now when you look into it further, you know, of course, Next Generation uh, was smart enough to have something called the Heisenberg Compensator, which I loved when I finally learned what exactly that meant. So I guess transporters in particular, um, I know it's it's not something we'll be able to render a verdict on here hard and fast, but if you beam someone from one place to the next, is it still you? This This is an important question. So... Um, if you want to talk about the physics of it, like what's physically possible is if you take any system, any system of particles, you could in principle read in the quantum information of, of the entire system, even something as complex as a human being. You know, there are 10 to the 28 particles in a human body, but if you can have a computer that can encode 10 to the 28 bits of information and you make that a quantum computer, you can read in all the information in a human being into a computer. You can then use quantum teleportation to teleport that information anywhere else in the universe. That's fine. There's not, that part's not forbidden. 
So you have the information now somewhere. And if you want, you could even take all the original particles of your original human being. You can deconstruct them atom by atom. You can transfer them over to this new location and reconstruct that human being. Now we come to your question. So that's what's physically <laughs> possible. Is it still you? This is, I like to think of this as the difference on your computer between hitting control X, control V, right, to cut and paste, and the difference between control C, delete, control V. <laughs> so there's a difference between cutting and pasting, right? When you cut and paste on your computer, you don't move that information. All you do is you change its address. The information stays the same, the bits stay the same, the, the stuff on your hard disk stays the same. All you do is you change the address. You say it's not located here, it's located there, right? You, you basically just change one reference on it. That's, that's all you do. But with copy, delete, and paste, what you're doing is you're, you're making a copy of that original. You're taking all the information about it, you're wiping out the original, and then you are making a wholesale new copy of it at some other location. That latter part, which is what the teleportation we've been talking about, the transporter we've been talking about, that's what that espouses to do, which makes me think, wow, what you're doing at every instance isn't that murdering the original and then creating a clone, a whole brand new life with all the thoughts and memories and experiences of the original that would be completely indistinguishable to any other observer, to anyone outside of you, except what was once you is now dead and what would be you, that new thing, thinks it's you, has all your memories, has all of everything. It's like the Next Generation episode where Will Riker is both safely transported off the planet and also left for dead behind on the planet, right? And that's the origin of Thomas Riker. Um, but I kind of think Thomas Riker is closer to the original Will Riker than Will Riker is, and also a fair bit cooler. Sorry, Will. <laughs> Awesome. So if you're standing on the transporter platform and Scotty's got his hand hovering over the control panel, you want to yell to him, is your finger on the X or the V key? Because <laughs> it, it makes a real difference, you know, and it also reminds me, um, I don't know if you saw the prequel series Enterprise, but watching Enterprise, I'm reminded of a moment where the crew is talking about the transporter and they 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 talk about Captain Archer, who said, that he wouldn't put his dog through that thing. And so I do think that whether you're doing copy paste uh, and delete or, or cut and paste, I think the transporter is absolutely fine for inanimate objects. This could revolutionize freight, shipping, transport, literally transport of any inanimate objects. But if you start talking about living beings or something that you love or yourself, um, you would maybe want to take the shuttle. So what about transwarp beaming like we saw in the Kelvin timeline? <laughs> I mean, look, if you can combine two technologies that can exist, of course, there's no reason there's no reason you can't do that, right? I like I, I like peanut butter. I like I like <laughs> jelly. There's no reason I can't have peanut butter and jelly. That's that's what transwarp that's what uh that's what the transwarp transport is to me. 
I don't mind that. That's fine. Um, but I do think that you have to be explicitly careful that what you think you're doing is what you're actually doing. Um, I don't think I don't think a transwarp transport is going to be any more or less likely to keep you alive to solve that. Uh, what do I call it? The Eunice problem than than a regular old transport. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask you a bit about was uh, kind of the process of coming up with, uh, well, all the technologies, but also what you say about them. What was kind of the most surprising thing uh, that you, I don't know if discovered is the right word, but that you included in this book when you were putting it together? You know, I will say, I will say a few of the chapters surprised me. Um, when I got to the Synthahall chapter, I, I suddenly realized like, oh, wow. So as a theoretical astrophysicist, I've got a lot of biology to learn if I want to write this chapter. So I, I had to go into the literature, into the PubMed literature and start seeing like, what are people doing about this? What are people doing about a synthetic alcohol? And I started learning like, well, here's the thing. When you drink alcohol, it produces, it causes your body to produce chemicals. And one of the chemicals it produces is called GABA, which is, I'm going to butcher it, gamma aminobutyric acid. Um, so, you know, someone who's actually a biologist will be like, oh, just call it GABA, please, for the love of everything, just call it GABA. So we're just going to call it GABA. And you have these receptors in your bodies that GABA binds to. So GABA binds to these receptors, and these receptors have all sorts of effects. And some of them you think of as good effects, and some of them you think of as negative side effects. But these are the ones that give you the feelings of increased self-confidence and the loss of inhibition and the euphoria. But they also give you a loss of equilibrium and nausea and dehydration and that terrible hangover the next day. So you would ideally say, hey, can we pharmacologically make a chemical that binds to the good GABA receptors, but doesn't bind to the bad GABA receptors. And moreover, as Gene Roddenberry originally envisioned, right, what he said was, well, I want a substance that you can drink it and you can have the good effects without the bad ones, but also when that red alert goes off, what I want is I want people that they could, let's just say it's the adrenaline, right? The adrenaline, like you hear the red alert, and you're like, oh no, Captain Picard needs me. So you run to the bridge and that adrenaline just makes you stone sober immediately. Yeah, because it almost seems like, you know, it was just like, oh, just will it and it will happen to become sober. But I would think if you're drunk, you would be having a hard time concentrating to make yourself sober with synthanol. I mean, it certainly seems to depend on how drunk you are, doesn't it? <laughs> um, you know, I, I know that uh, the amount of willpower and certainly the amount of wherewithal that you have in yourself uh, is pretty dependent on, you know, oh, yeah, like I, I had a beer and I'm doing OK versus like, you know, well, I drank a bottle of this stuff that they just called blue stuff and <laughs> now I'm not feeling so good. Um so I imagine synthahol has that counterpart too. But what actually happens in the human body is they have developed an entire class of drugs. I believe they're called benzodiazepines, um, And this is the same thing that Valium and Clonopan and a bunch of prescription drugs are based off of, where they are what's known as partial GABA 
agonists, which means they bind to some of the GABA subunit receptors, but not others. And so maybe you can get some of the good feelings without some of the bad feelings that come along with alcohol. Moreover, they have an antidote chemical. That's something that you can take, I think, in just pill form, and it comes in, and if you need to be sober, it just outcompetes the molecules that the drugs give you. It binds to it, it blocks those receptors basically and keeps the GABA from binding to them, from binding to these GABA subunit receptors. So you can get your sobriety back very fast. Now, in real life, where we are today, these all of these drugs we have, they don't yet give you all of the good effects and none of the bad effects. And the antidote pills do have side effects in many people, and some of them are quite severe, like seizures. But when you think about that, you know, when Synthahol was envisioned, this was like just a pipe dream. And now here we are just a few decades later, and we've made this much progress towards it. We know that this is just a pharmacology problem now. This is just a problem of designing the right molecules to get into your body. And if we can do that, then that's a technology that could have huge positive impacts on society. Imagine a world with no alcoholism, with no cirrhosis of the liver, where people don't get violent when they've been drinking, where there's no drunk driving. Like this is this is a big deal for public safety and public health. And it's something that could just be a case where, you know, this is a big societal problem. I mean, it was a hundred years ago that we banned alcohol because of the societal problems that were coming along with it. Um, and we could just solve them with technology. How great would that be if you didn't have to rely on people's goodwill, good nature and personal growth to solve big societal problems that you could just say, yeah, instead of putting ethanol in that, we're going to put synthahol in that problem solved. Well, and then you have new technologies that could cause other issues like an addiction to holodex, because I can see that happening with myself. So let's talk a little bit about the holodeck, because I mean, you were saying about making holograms are just projections of light. And that that's fairly easy to do. We've, we've kind of reached some of that now, but then it's a whole nother thing to create a true matter hologram. That's right. So when you talk about creating a true matter hologram, the big thing I want you to think about is why. What do you want to accomplish by having a matter hologram? Because, you know, you, presumably there's a difference between just replicating a, a person there because then you have to worry about like, like they did in the episode with Moriarty in the next generation where like, oh no, like, have I actually made a sentient thing over here? And is it really ethical to just be like computer and program? And then it's like, it's death. Um, so rather than go that route, I'd rather ask you to think about what are all of the things that go into a hologram as you would want to do it. And, and what I would assert is you really just want that multimedia experience. You want the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the touches. And ideally, you can go even a step further and, and feel hunger in your body when you feel that or satiety when you've eaten the hollow food. And, and you, want, you want all of these senses that you have to be stimulated in the right way. 
one of the most amazing things I ran across that actually exists is they have this virtual reality program that you can put on where, you know, yes, you have the eye gear where you get the vision, you have the headphones, the 3D, the surround sound headphones where you get the sounds with the direction, but they incorporated tactile feedback into this. They incorporated touch sensors into this. And the simple program they gave as the demo is you would look out at what looked like drops of water falling down and you could hold out your hand and try and move your hand to the place to catch the drops of falling water. And you can see the water, you can hear the dripping sound, and if you get your hand in the right spot, they have infrasound emitters that will cause that splash feeling in your hand where you can actually feel the water drop hitting it and it feels wet. It simulates that feeling of wetness when it hits your hand. That's incredible to me. That is an incredible advance. You start talking about pumping in smells now, olfactory stimulation. Um, and and I, I'm saying like, you know, we look at the holodeck and obviously that's something that wasn't around in the original series, right? We, we don't have that 250 years in the future. You have to go 350 years in the future to have that. And I bet you that we'll have something that's, Maybe not identical in every way to what the next generation envisioned, um, but that will be really, really useful for everything from training simulations to entertainment and leisure to, you know, something you wouldn't want to, uh, to, to just educational situations. I bet you will have that within about 20 years in a way where you would never believe it, even thinking about it today. Wow, that's incredible. Um, and that actually leads me to one of the things that I really appreciated about this book. A lot of the technologies, it seems like, you know, somebody could approach the topic and say, well, this isn't possible because blah, blah, blah. And that won't work because blah, blah, blah. But I really appreciated the balance you brought to it. You examine a lot of the cutting edge processes that could bring us into the Trek future, like the holodecks, like something that, like you said, we don't see in Star Trek for another few centuries, but we could have something very comparable very soon. But also being realistic about areas that'll be more difficult. We talked about, you know, subspace doesn't exist, for example, and inertial dampeners are kind of being in the realm of total fiction I just, I, I loved that kind of balanced approach here. And, you know, reading this book, it really made me excited for that future. And in a lot of ways, realizing that a lot of that future is here today. I think that's, that's wonderful because I think that's a big part of what I was trying to communicate in writing this book is for each technology that we looked at, what I tried to do is break it down where, okay, like how does this play out in the Star Trek universe? How does Star Trek envision this working? And now let's look at the real life science. Let's look at the real life science behind this technology. Where are we? Where do we need to get? Where is this headed? And then let's bring this all together and evaluate it. Let's evaluate like where, where are we? What's the closest thing we've achieved? What are the next steps? And then in the cases where we are a little bit further away, right? Then it's sort of like, well, and if we want to make this a reality, 
then what are the extra steps we'll need to take? So for subspace communication, yeah, subspace doesn't exist, but if you want to have that faster than light instantaneous communication, well, if you can send a spaceship through warp drive, certainly you could send a, a light signal or a gravitational wave signal faster than light by doing the same thing. Just make like a little warp bubble, have it go through space and send your power signal through it. And all of a sudden you've sent a message across many, many light years in just the blink of an eye. Well, I think it's important to let the listeners know more about the format of your book. I mean, of course, we're getting an idea of kind of the topics that you're covering here, but this this is a, a nice hardbound book that has pictures and illustrations in it. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely one of the things I love about this book is how visually stunning it is. This this is a book that um, I think would be at home on any bookshelf or right centerpiece on your coffee table. It's that beautiful. It's that good looking. There are literally hundreds of images in it, most of them taken directly from Star Trek and its various incarnations on the small screen and on the big screen. As um, as we did, we got the license rights from CBS Studios and Paramount Pictures to include all the up-to-date photos in it, um, which is incredible. It, it, I would say like there are maybe two or three pages in the whole book that don't have images on them. And this is a 200 plus page book. Um, it's divided into six sections where we talk about um, starship technology, weapons and defense, communications, medical and biological, computational, and uh oh, I gotta look. I'm forgetting the last one. Uh, civilian and technology. And civilian technology, yeah. right? And this is where you get the things like replicators and synth hall and, and even things we take for granted today, like automatic sliding doors. When was the last time you walked into a grocery store and you were like, oh, future? But no, like this was something that when the original series came out, like we didn't have automatic sliding doors. And now every time you go to the airport, you're annoyed you have to wait for them. And I also love that you bring up uh, the fact that kind of something we as watchers of Star Trek have kind of made fun of over the years. You make an actual point of these doors. It's like they read the script. They know when you actually mean to walk out of the room and when you just walk by it close enough that like a modern, I mean, you know, a basic supermarket door that we have today would fly open, even though we didn't mean to go through it. The Star Trek doors somehow know not to do that. And I love that you incorporated that into the chapter and said, look how great these smart doors are on the starships. And not only that, but that's, that's, I think the next step is just because we have the technology that Star Trek envisioned doesn't mean um, we can't do better. That doesn't mean we can't conquer that next obstacle. So I do make sure to talk about that with automatic sliding doors, how we're using computational predictive analytics and motion sensors to gauge what is someone's intention when they're walking. Do the doors know how to open or close? That's something that's presently not only in development, but that prototypes are having like 90 plus percent success rates at this, which is, which is fascinating. 
to quote Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a great book. And, and if anybody feels like, oh, I might be a little too intimidated to read it, it's going to be over my head. It's actually a fun read. It's very interesting. You pull in a lot of uh, references to Star Trek in different scenes and, and that we've seen in the movies and the TV shows into it. So it's really a fun and very, very interesting read. And Dan, did you have any final thoughts on the book before we close out? Well, I just... Uh... Like I said, I really enjoyed this book. I was I was actually kind of curious, just again, before we close out, was there anything that we didn't bring up technology-wise that you felt was uh, kind of extra special that you wanted to mention? You know, for me, there are a lot of things that are special about the technologies, but I think if there was one more thing to mention, it would be about the spirit of Star Trek, because that was something I really felt writing this book, is that Star Trek is not just about like, oh, here's the technologies and here's how they uh, how they apply and here's how they are compared to the real world. world. Star Trek is about using this technology for the betterment of humanity. Star Trek is about developing and going together as a species and, and even interspecies in the universe. It's about, it's about setting your side, aside your differences and looking for these themes that unify all of us and using this technology for the betterment and the improvement of everyone to eliminate wants and needs, to give everybody a, a high quality of life. and. And I think in writing about these technologies, it was wonderful to sort of see how a better present and a better future is coming about. And so I think uh, this was something that I got to express and weave into a very large number of chapters and also talk about in the introduction and the conclusion of this book. You know, I think I think I was very pleased that I was able to end the book by saying, you know, our journey does not end with us, but continues from generation to generation with each one enjoying a better quality of life than the last. We have not reached our limits yet. Our mission to boldly go where no one has gone before continues. It's up to us to make it so. I think those are, that's the message that I want to leave everybody with is that this is incredible how far we've come. But if you keep your eyes looking towards the future, towards what this could be, towards what life and existence could be, that's the dream of Star Trek that we need to take with us every day into our lives. Well said. The book, again, is Star Trek Treknology. It's available in all your book retailers. Ethan, if somebody wanted to find you online, how can people find you? Probably the easiest way to find me is look for me on Twitter. I'm starts with a bang. Look for me on Facebook. I'm Ethan Siegel. And I'm also starts with a bang on Tumblr. And I have an almost daily blog called, wait for it, starts with a bang on Forbes that I've been writing since 2008. So if you're wondering like, oh, how does that physicist write so well in understandable terms about technologies that seem a little bit, you know, high level stuff. It's because I've been doing this with physics and astronomy for almost a decade. Awesome. Well, we really on, it's been an honor to have you on the show and thank you so much for sharing about this wonderful book and everyone out there. If you haven't picked this up, you definitely should because not only is it really informative and a really fun read, it's absolutely gorgeous and like has been mentioned, it would look great on anybody's coffee table or bookshelf. Well, now correct me if I'm wrong, 
I could be wrong about this, but is this the first time we've had a PhD as a guest on Literary Treks? Uh, possibly. I don't know. It might be. I think that's pretty cool. I think we're moving up in the world, Bruce. <laughs> it's making us look smarter, so we're deceiving a lot of people. <laughs> uh, you said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud there, Bruce, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused. I, it's all this synthanol I'm drinking. It's just it's just messing me up. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll switch on the red alert and you can shake that right off and... Uh, Get my adrenaline going and it comes right exactly. off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been ta fun talking about my adrenaline today, but, you know, it's not the only thing we're talking about here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. For an opening episode to get that relationship like you could see that that crew really had been working together for seven years which is so wow. not normal for a launch for a first episode right because you yeah. you've got the odds but they seemed to be have working forever together the camaraderie that they had the trust that they have with each other to the journey and then, you know, they're all up on the bridge and everyone's like, oh, what's Belana doing with her day off? And Tom's like, oh, she's binge-watching Bill Nye. <laughs> <laughs> she's been there, you know, in her PJs since 8 o'clock this morning. <laughs> I can picture she's been watching Bill Nye all day. Tom comes home and she says to Tom, you know, Tom, have you ever thought about wearing a bow tie? <laughs> <laughs> but if he's on the bridge and says all that, would Captain Janeway know who Bill Nye the science guy is? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> it's Janeway. The 602 Club. So I graduated from high school in 1984. So this film came out in my, what, sophomore year in high school? So that was like prime formative years for me. Um, this is, you know, this and Mad Max were the R-rated movies that me and all of my friends wanted to go see. Meta Trex. It knows to point that out and say, that's red. You know, it, it will correctly identify the red shirt as red, but really perceives it like we perceive blue. I knew Kirk should have wore his green tunic when he went to fight the Gorn. Yeah, it would have made all the difference. It would have made all the difference. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a star rating and a written review and let us know how we're doing. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of the shows from Trek FM on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. You know what's great, Dan? What's that, Bruce? I've met a lot of Star Trek fans from being a patron through Patreon here at Trek FM. It's like a little club, and it doesn't cost much money. <laughs> you can do like a dollar a month or $5 a month or whatever, and you're helping out the network. So if anybody wants to join in on that and help Trek FM and get to know other Star Trek fans, 
visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. And you'll get all the details. And there's all kinds of perks, including early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us. Now, again, all the details are at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, whether that's explaining about the true nature of the transporters and how you don't actually die or you do, or if you just want to express disappointment that subspace doesn't exist. There are many ways for you to share your thoughts with us. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, like the tower or the planetoid, into the search field field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks. That'll come right to Bruce and I. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You know what, Dan? What's that, Bruce? I've met a lot of friends through our Goodreads group. (laughs) That synthol is really getting to you, isn't it? <laughs> red alert, red alert. But no, it's cool because the Goodreads group, it's like people who listen to the show and read the books, we can discuss it in our Goodreads group and it's a private group. So all you have to do is search for literary tracks on Goodreads and uh, ask to join and we'll let you in and then you can join in the discussion. So join us there and uh by this time this episode's out you should see a new banner too so anybody who's in the goodreads group is going to see a new banner on the site so that's pretty exciting too i love new banner day i know it don't you (laughs) and speaking of (laughs) banner days i'd love to give a shout out to ken trip greg rosier brandon shamatella and justin ozer for their support for the trek fm network and being associate producers right here on literary treks So, Dan, when you're not looking to find a new budget for NASA for the next 10 years, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions and on Facebook on the Babel Conference and on facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions. Now, Bruce, when you're not peeking over Scotty's shoulder as he's running the transporter, trying to see if he's hitting Control-X or Control-C, where can we find you? Hi, lass. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me talking Discovery on Live from the Edge as part of the Edge podcast show here on Trek FM. And I'm on with Brandy Jackala, and we talk about discovery the day after monday nights at 9 p.m eastern 6 p.m pacific and it's a live show so join in on the fun and you can find me talking star wars on the star wars report podcast that's at starwarsreport.com and of course i'm in the babel conference and you know what dan what's that bruce i like to thank everyone for listening and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one Welcome, everyone, to episode 
208 of Literary Tracks. We're your official... Bur- <laughs> we're, we're your official what? We're your official burp. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know why that's so funny. <laughs> that's the name of the episode. Your official burp. <laughs> Good lord. Do we want to do we want to close that file and start again for Matt's sake? We can if you want. Let's we we'll, we'll, let's close it and do it again. Okay. <laughs>